The greatest obstacle to living is expectancy, which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum. On this episode of the podcast, we have Alec Blennis. Alec is a former Spartan pro and ultra runner and the current Murph world record holder, as well as an elite sports performance coach creating high bed athletes. And today he takes us down the rabbit hole of how he actually does that, why he doesn't believe exercises are dangerous, and how he built up a social media following with sex and zombies. An amazing conversation with a great dude. Thank you for listening. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Hey, Austin. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we were just uh, we were just talking about your background a little bit. And I'm probably going to make you repeat it. You said that uh, you DM me and you told me that you love talking about your background. So I'd love to hear all your, <laughs> uh, your, your middle school achievements and everything there. But how did you get into the world of the hybrid athlete and the CrossFit world and the Spartan races and the sex and zombies? Like, how did you get into the world? You, you told me that you didn't really have the background and you weren't going to school for the exercise science, but I, I will listen to all your Q and A's and it's like a very, very in-depth knowledge of everything around us that we're talking about. So how did you get into this world and, and how did you acquire that amount of knowledge? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think so many people that get into um, the hybrid space or the concurrent training space. Um, I think very few of them discover that like outright, they don't just like jump into, um, hybrid training. They usually start, um, as an endurance athlete first or a strength athlete first, um, and then come to the realization that they weren't great at either of those things. Um, so they just kind of, uh, combine them. And that was certainly my experience as well. I kind of bounced around, uh, every sport you can, you can think of, um, baseball, football, basketball, like whatever, um, you name it, I kind of tried it and I was, I was good at pretty much anything, uh, but I never really found that thing that I was um, great at. Um, and once upon a time in, in high school, I just kind of stumbled across um, Spartan Race, obstacle course racing, and realized that my background in cross country um, with the aerobic uh, capacity side of things, but then my general athleticism and strength from like football and wrestling and all that kind of stuff um, made me a natural at obstacle course racing. And I did fin- phenomenally in my first race, um, ended up doing a bunch more, getting uh, sponsored, um, competed on the Spartan race pro team, ended up doing like a competition every single weekend. Um, and just really fell in love with that sport competing at a high level. Um, met a lot of great people, um, doing obstacle course racing, uh, and eventually got hired to be an obstacle course racing coach for complete human performance. And that's really, uh, how I fell into the the whole hybrid training space. And it just evolved from there. 
Um, got into doing all sorts of strength sports, endurance sports, helping people combine powerlifting with ultra marathon running and, and all these sorts of things. But it kind of all started with obstacle course racing. That's pretty dope. Did you ever change your college degree or did you end up graduating in? Um, so I ended up graduating uh, with a physics degree. Okay. Um, I started uh, a master's program. I was doing uh, some research. Um, it was super boring just being stuck in a lab, uh, you know, in this like dark, dreary basement. Um, I, I was drawn to physics um, because, well, to be honest, I thought I wanted to make a lot of money, right? Like everyone, they're going to college, like what can make a lot of money? Um, and in my mind, I was like, what do, what's like the smartest thing? <laughs> what's this, what's the smartest uh, thing I can do or who are the smartest people? And I thought of physicists, I'm like that would be, that'd be sick. Like what can't you do with a physics degree? Um, I was really just interested in the, the kind of how stuff works kind of thing. I feel like if you have a physics background, um, you can kind of use that to, to understand just about anything on a fundamental level. So that's kind of what drew me to physics in the first place. Uh, and I, I did enjoy the program, but once you get into the nitty gritty, like um, day to day, like what are you going to do for a living? How are you going to spend the rest of your life? Uh, and I found myself kind of in a research lab, like, you know, I got to get outside. I got to see, I got to see the sun. Um, and it, while I was doing that kind of stuff, I was, I was racing, I was competing at a high level, uh, making some, some good connections with um, strength and conditioning coaches and, and that kind of thing and realized uh, that is a way more uh, fun and enjoyable way um, to spend my life. The, the only downside was I thought I couldn't make any money doing it. Um, you know, I was kind of in school for this, this payoff at the end kind of thing. And then you look and you see, you know, the average personal trainer only makes like 30 K a year or whatever. I'm like, well, that sounds kind of shitty to me. Um, so it was <laughs> kind of this like toss up of, you know, like, do I, do I really want to throw away all this education and all this time I've invested to, to pursue this thing that I love, but I don't think it's going to make any money. Uh, and I got to give credit to, to my wife, girlfriend at the time who really encouraged me to step in the direction that I, that I really wanted to go. Um, and I learned that if you do dedicate yourself to something that you're passionate about, you're going to get good at it and, and you're going to make a lot of money. So best decision I ever made. Yeah, that that that's uh, we'll definitely cover that because that that's something that it's like the the only way to make a lot of money really is to be really really good at something and, and provide value and like answer people's problems like solve people's problems and the only way to solve people's problems is to be really good at something the only way to be really good at something is to be really interested at something you know and, and that's where you get kind of stuck it's like the, you, there is money to be made like there's money to be made in this field there, there's money to be made in any field if you want I, I was watching a, a video. Uh, it was some TikTok video, but he was like, this dude had made six figures doing some insane, I can't remember what, it was like breaking down Nickelback videos or something like that. And he found <laughs> a way to, he was making six figures off TikTok videos of just breaking down Nickelback lyric videos. And it just made me think, it's like all these coaches I bitch about not making enough money in our field. It's like, man, this dude found a way to make six figures breaking down Nickelback lyric videos. And we can't, like you're, you're working with people one-on-one, -on -one. You're, you have a business, you have a physical thing you can sell people. And you can't make money off of it. So it's like there, there's a huge disconnect there. And I feel like a lot of it's kind of this big story that we tell ourselves of like we're stuck in this like 30K a year mindset. And at like the college is brutal, too. It's like a lot of coaches, it's like it, the, the the logo and like wearing the logo and doing that. So like they'll sacrifice and they, they'll accept that 30K, 30K a year contract and working in colleges. And if somebody accepts it, they're not going to pay more for it, you know, so it's like. You got to be able to solve problems better than the person next to you. And you got to be able to sell that too, which I, which I think is a huge piece. Like we, we talked social media just a little bit more, like figuring out how to build a community, figuring out how to get your message across. Like those, those are huge pieces to the marketing piece of 
how to make money. And and that's, that's with any job, like in some jobs, it's just your resume. And, but a lot of times it's connections too, you know, like every job has a piece of that marketing. Like you have to sell yourself and you have to solve problems. And I feel like in the strength conditioning field, we just say, I don't want to sell myself. Like they they get stuck in this. I don't want to sell myself. And it's like every job you have to sell yourself, you know? Absolutely. You know, it's, it was a tough transition for me to make because in the world of, of physics, right. That's, that's one environment where, most people don't have great like social skills, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a bunch of just mad geniuses that are super smart, great at like, you know, grinding numbers, whatever. Um, And you don't see a lot of that, like really, really good um, emotional intelligence and ability to relate to people and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I felt like that was me for a long time and in some ways still is. I think it's an area of opportunity and and continued growth. Um, But I kind of came from this background where it wasn't, it wasn't about the connections. It was about how smart are you? What do you know? And, and that kind of thing. And I, for too long, I tried to apply that kind of mindset um, to strength and conditioning and other areas of life where 99% of the time it is about your connections and who you know and, and that kind of thing versus like being in school was like, what do you know? You know, um, so to kind of um, try to make that transition was, was challenging. And in the context of social media, um, you know, at this point, I feel like I've been really successful with my social media presence and get a lot of clients and business through that, that medium and, and everything. But when I first started out, I thought, okay, there's money to be made here. How can I do it? And I thought if I just made a good enough post, or if I just had a post that was smart enough or had the right piece of advice, um, and I kind of spun my wheels trying to make just better and better, more insightful posts, and they would just go nowhere. you know. And I'd look at these posts on Instagram from popular accounts, uh, famous strength and conditioning coaches, where it was like, someone would just like wake up and take a picture of themselves and say hi. And it gets like 15,000 <laughs> likes. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like I'm putting together this like insanely comprehensive review of like how to train this muscle or, or whatever gets like three views. And this other dude just like saying, you know, Hey, happy Friday. And it's got like 15,000 likes. Like what am I missing? Right. Um, so that was hard for me to understand of like, what is the missing piece and how do you get to that point? If it's not, just providing value, which I felt like I was doing, what else is it? Uh, and that was, that was a big learning experience. What, what was that missing piece for you? Cause that, that's a big piece that a lot of coaches struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what I found obviously is, you know, how does a, how does a page grow, right? Like people share your content or they tag their friends or, or whatever. Um, and a lot of that comes down to people need to feel like they know you, you know, it's one thing for someone to find, um, you know, an interesting post or whatever, um, but it's much more impactful when you feel like the person you're following, you feel like you have some sort of personal connection with them or you feel like you you know who they are. Um, so that's a that was a big piece of it. Um, and I think that comes down to helping people on an individual level. Um, so for me, a big thing that's helped on social media is not just expecting to put out good posts and have people share them, but reciprocating as well. So like sharing posts that I enjoy and commenting on people's posts that I found insightful and saying, hey, nice job, really like this it goes a long way and it it doesn't sound like a big deal, but if you have someone that you've supported over the years, they're much more likely to reciprocate that and, and support you or share a page or share a post of yours. So I think a a big one is people get kind of selfish in the space and they're like, I just want to put out all these posts and and hope that people support me um, and share my posts, but they aren't doing it for other people. Um, So that's a, a big one. The other is know the community that you're trying to get a part of. So when I decided to, to start really taking social media seriously, I looked at a lot of coaches that I respected, valued what they said, uh, would love to have an audience like they have. And I thought, 
I don't just need to try to copy them. I need to get to know them. Um, so for example, uh, compound performance, Kyle Dobbs, um, Matt Domney, Angus Bradley. Um, these are some people that I looked up to and thought, I want to get into that network. Um, and I think I've done so successfully. I've been on all their podcasts, for example, but that wasn't by accident. Like I looked at those people and thought, I need to get into that community. I need to have conversations with these individuals um, if that's you know who I'm trying to be like or, or get to that level. Um, so going and um, commenting on their posts, supporting them, adding commentary that I thought was valuable, that kind of thing to show people that, hey, I care about what you're doing because uh, they're not going to care about what you're doing unless you care about what they're doing. Um, so being strategic about how you build community, how you become a part of a community um, is as important, if not more important than having valuable posts in the first place. Yeah, that, that's so good. I love the ownership piece that you took over it. I was, I was trying to find it in my notes, but I was working on a piece of writing and it was basically, it's like until proven otherwise, you are probably not Van Gogh. And like what I was thinking about there was like Van Gogh wrote, like uh, painted like a thousand paintings um, and only sold one during his lifetime. And then he got famous after. And I feel like a lot of coaches get stuck in this like, Kind of, and I've been stuck there too. And then that's why I feel like I can speak from a lot of these. Like I've been stuck. It's like almost kind of like a woe is me. Like, why isn't it hitting? I'm doing all this good stuff. Like, I feel like I'm putting out good content. Like, this is better than that. And like, you get stuck in this. And it's like, until proven otherwise, you're probably not Van Gogh. So go like, you got to go fix it. Like, you got to go sell your stuff. You got to go do it. And maybe if you are Van Gogh and you find out after your death that all your stuff was just way advanced and it's 10 years later <laughs> it hits, okay, that happens. But that's going to happen regardless, man. But if you want to have it happen in your lifetime, like, you have to make steps to make it happen in your lifetime. And pursuing some of those things, you know, like, I, I think a big thing that you said is not just copying the coaches, too. It's like getting to know them and entering the network and having conversations with people. Because it's like, what I see now, it's like, I've noticed this. It's like, there, I have a couple of, like, if I start doing voiceovers on videos, I know four or five coaches will start doing voiceovers on videos and they'll start to do it. And it, like, it's awesome to mimic, like I do the same, like I try to watch people that I like too, and like watch and be able to do things. I'm like, wow, that's super cool. That's super successful. And it's great. And I like, I don't take it. It's not like you're taking, I don't approach it in a way of like, you're taking food out of my mouth or it's like, you're stealing fault, like whatever. I don't care about that sense, but it's like, it's not going to work. Cause it's not you. Like it's, it's just another, another copy paste of somebody else and you see it a lot with coaches it's like we're just copy pasting of course that like you the, you're not breaking down that barrier at all that person's going to your page and seeing a copy if i can go to your page and see who you're copy and pasting everybody else is feeling that even if they don't know who it is they're like this isn't this isn't really you there's something else going on here like what's happening here and you really really have to try your hardest to break down those barriers on social media because there's enough barriers on social media you're not you're not face to face with that person you're you're not understanding what that person's actually saying or actually doing or or their mood and i feel like a lot of coaches they they get super nervous and it's and it is it is kind of nerve-wracking sometimes especially when you're starting i remember thinking about my first couple posts i was so nervous my, my friends are gonna make fun of me this is like this isn't gonna hit whatever but you know like at some point you gotta let down that veil and, and you just gotta be yourself and treat it kind of like a dance like you're gonna put out stuff that maybe is not the best like expression of what you wanted to put out but that's the only way you get better like you step on your partner's foot when you're dancing and then you're not going to do that again but if, if you just kind of avoid the dance altogether you're never going to get the hot girl to come dance with you you know <laughs> absolutely dude i i remember the first post of mine that was that was really successful and showed me like oh you can do this um you know because i've been posting like like I said, um, you know, exercise demos or talking about how to train this muscle or that muscle, just kind of standard kind of strength and conditioning type stuff. And they, they weren't seeming to go anywhere. And this is before I had really established um, any sort of like community or 
or um, sense of personal connection. Um, and it wasn't a post I expected to do well. It was, it was one of those, like, um, I feel like a lot of meme pages do this, right? Like it, if you want to put together a funny meme, it might take you like way too long, right? And you're not doing it for others. You like, you think it's funny you yourself. You start laughing like, at I, yourself, yep. I, I got this thing that I think is funny. I don't know if anyone else is going to give a shit, but like, this is funny enough that I'm going to like waste an hour of my time putting together <laughs> a stupid little cartoon. Um, so <laughs> uh, it was it was one of those for me. Um, I made a, a Dunning-Kruger uh, kind of graph, like the, the idea of like, um, reaching Mount, Mount stupid, right? When you like think, you know, everything, but you really don't know a whole lot. And then as you continue to, to learn, get more educated, um, you know, your, your sense of confidence kind of declines with increasing knowledge. I made one of those and plotted different bicep curl variations along it. Um, I just got a kick out of it in my head. I'm like, I, I got an idea for like the different types of bicep curls that people will do, um, depending on where they are in this, like, you know, evolution of their, their mastery of the subject. Um, and people freaking loved it, which, it made me so happy to see that people loved it and it got shared so much when to me, it was like just something that I, I wanted to make. Like I'm literally making this cause I think it's funny. I don't know if anyone else is going to care, um, but people loved it. And that showed me that it's like all the, the time you were spending putting into like telling people how to train their glutes. Like, yeah, that's cool information. It's valuable information. But like what you just did here was truly unique. You found your voice, you put together a piece of information or, or a piece of content that, really no one else is talking about. Um, so it gave me that perspective of like, there's already a thousand, you know, accounts out there making good information about how to do a squat better or whatever. What can you offer that's that's truly unique? Um, and that kind of shifted my perspective on what kind of content I really want to make. Yeah, and that, that reminds me of like the Peterson quote. It's like, uh, if you're bored writing it, imagine what your readers are feeling reading it, you know? And I feel like that's a lot of like, it's like you're, you feel like you're supposed to put out certain content and it's like, if it's work writing it, like it's, it's pulling teeth, reading what you're writing. And there, there's not, there's no piece there. And another piece, and I've had like Leo Wick was a guy that I had on, he, he has a lot of memes and he's like fucking hilarious on all this. I was talking to him and it's like, if you really think your knowledge, like you, you have knowledge that you want to share. Uh, and, and you want to get that in front of people like it, it's your responsibility to get in front of people. So it's like, like, like what I think your page does a nice job of and a lot of pages do a really good job of this. It's like great memes that have that have some sort of like, like the humor gets people planted in an idea of like, okay, there's something here that I can learn. And, and like your page does a nice job of super in-depth detail and then if somebody doesn't want to go super in-depth you have it backed up with a meme or like the meme will get them hooked up with something like hooked on to like okay that was funny now i'm gonna read but it's like i feel like so many coaches it's almost like this um what's the word like entitled feeling of somebody should read my stuff like i am smart enough they should read it it's like you really can't approach like you're never going to build a community that way like you got you if you really think your stuff is worth reading you should get people hooked on reading it and, and have them have them want to read what you want to write. If yeah. your knowledge is that valuable that they should be reading it. If you think it's going to change yeah. the world, if you think it's going to change an individual's uh, fitness path. There's got to be, there's got to be some sort of hook and that can be different for, for everyone. For example, um, Mark, Mark Rosenberg, I think is his name, deadliest lift. Um, he reads a lot <laughs> of long form, really, really in-depth stuff. Um, and to me that the hook there is he's just such a freaking impressive athlete. Like when you see someone pulling like 800 pounds off the floor from like a 30 inch deficit, you're like, I, I want to know what this person has today. <laughs> um, so when you have someone that's at that level of, of impressiveness, they can just put out this big wall of text and like, oh, he's got something to say. I want to see what this is. Uh, but the reality is like, I know that a lot of strength and conditioning coaches are obviously into fitness, um, but most of them are not at that level in terms of like actual 
you know, the impressiveness of their physique or their lifts or whatever. So when you're like another, you know, you know, strength and conditioning specialist that deadlifts four or five plates, like big deal, like so can most of them. Right. Um, so what is, what is your hook then? People are probably not listening to you because they think you're a freak athlete. Um, people are listening to you because of what, and that's kind of up to you to figure out. Um, are you, are you funny? Do you take a unique perspective? Um, are your posts, especially provocative? Um, do you take hot takes? Like what is it that gets people hooked? Um, a friend of mine told me that when he writes a social media post or writes anything, he starts with the the first word and thinking that the first word is there to get someone to the second word. And the second word is there to get someone to the third word. Right. And when you take it down to that, like that level of detail, of like, okay, the first word in my sentence is this, how does that set up the, the rest of the post? When you break it down to that level of detail, um, I, I think your posts get a lot more powerful because it's easy to just like start saying what you want to say and realize that you just wasted two sentences saying something completely uninteresting. You know, you got to like start, start early because people's attention span is very, very short um, on social media. Uh, on Instagram, if you're scrolling, like if that first word or two doesn't catch your attention, you're moving on. Even if the rest of the post is great, nobody's going to know. Yeah, that that's so freaking good. That's so good. I could rant about the social media stuff with you forever. <laughs> this, this is good. Um, I want to bring this back into training. So people probably came here from training, and we, you and I just gave them a whole business course seminar. So that's the uh, the master course will be dropping uh, next month, thousand dollars. <laughs> so we're all through with that. But training, I I went to your page and I I, I freaking loved it. There were, there were so many good things there. One of the things that I wanted to start with was your approach on like basically exercises aren't dangerous. I'm not quoting quoting you here, but you said exercises aren't dangerous. Your your dumbass training is pretty much. And like one of the things I loved, it's like you have this bi. And I've been talking about this for a while too. It's like this bilateral versus unilateral thing. And you 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 summed it up so perfectly. It's like don't you're you're switching from a ten RPE bilateral squat to a six rpe like reverse lunge and tell me you feel better it's like well no shit like it's apples and oranges completely and if you were sending your school like your lunges it, it would probably be like you you would have something else would pop up like you want to you said hard work is risky you know and approaching it in this light i just feel like it, it's so common sense but we there's so many coaches out there and big coaches this is the thing that annoys me that like these are high level coaches that just like it, it's methods like they, they swear by methods and certain exercises like bulgarian and uh, reverse lunge is better than a squat can you kind of give me your thoughts on why why that is just not the case yeah yeah first of all it it, it drives me absolutely not just our entire industry's obsession with with like injury injury prevention safety like all this stuff honestly drives me insane um, and it's one of those things that it's hard to say without people like, you know, especially for someone that's not particularly, um, educated and informed on, on the subject. When you tell just someone on the side of the street, like, Hey, I don't think that like a personal trainer's number one job should be injury prevention. They're like, really? I think that, I think it should be. Um, but when you start to understand that injury, um, and pain and all that stuff is one extremely complex, um, nearly impossible to predict. There's very little you can do out, do about it outside of just not trying, um, it's a, it's a very kind of multifactorial, um, you know, abstract concept in a sense. Um, so yeah, you can mitigate certain aspects of, of injury risk, but at the end of the day, if you're trying hard at something and if you care about something enough to push yourself to your limits, there's going to be some risk involved. Um, so yeah, if you want to go to the gym and sandbag everything and RPE five, your way to like, you know, being a lifetime intermediate, yeah, you probably won't get hurt, you know, or at least your, your odds of injury will be lower than someone who goes in and sends it and tries to accomplish something phenomenal. 
um, that person probably has a little bit higher of an injury risk. But when we're comparing things like a squat versus a deadlift for lunge or um, anything along those lines, there's just no evidence to back up the claim that any certain exercise is, you know, more injurious than another on a, on a level of statistical significance. Um, you know, whether it's Olympic weightlifting versus powerlifting versus running versus playing football, like all of these things have, have an injury risk associated with them. Um, and the higher you get, um, the heavier the weight that you're lifting, um, the higher uh, you're performing in your sport, um, the harder you push compared to your, your human potential, um, the more likely that some of these injuries might be potentially catastrophic. Um, but that can't stop you from trying to get better and trying to get stronger. Uh, so at the end of the day, when it comes to like trying to mitigate injury risk, I think that too many coaches, too many trainers try to take too much of that responsibility. Uh, they try to take too much of the control. Um, in a sense, to try to give their own job, their own title, give themselves, you know, greater significance, right? Like they're the person that's going to keep you from getting hurt or they have the the silver bullet or the magic technique that's going to prevent your future injury. Um, it can be a great selling point because uh, I think there's this big, big culture of fear. You know, a lot of people are scared to go in a gym because they don't want to get hurt or they've seen the gym fail videos of someone snapping their leg in half on a leg press, right? So a lot of people have this fear and it's an easy thing to prey on. Um, but I think once you dive into, um, you know, whether it's the research comparing different strength training modalities or sports, uh, whether it's pain science, um, all that kind of stuff, you realize that all of the things that, you know, especially personal trainers think that they can do about injury, they, they just can't like 99% of it is just completely, completely made up marketing bullshit. Um, there's shreds of truth to a couple of things here and there. Uh, but by and large, most of the things that your average coach or trainer says about Injury prevention is is really pulled straight out of their ass. So many good points there. I, I talk about like not selling your poison all the time, and 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 it's it's so obvious because it's like if you if you can't sell injury prevention, what are you selling? Because it's like, yeah, I want to sell performance, but it's like it's tough to sell performance when you have just freaks freak of nature is going out there and just and you hear this from coaches all the time you see freaks of nature that haven't trained and they're just freaks like they're specimens and that's what they want to be and what they say is like oh yeah but he's going to get hurt and if I, he trained with me he want to get hurt so it's like it's so <laughs> yeah. much easier to sell the the I, I i can do i i you won't get hurt because you can't really sell like they can't totally sell the freak of nature genetic type aspect of it um <laughs> which is weird because like you can you know you can obviously push performance so you can obviously do that but it's like it, it's stuck in their head that if they can't sell it that way it's really tough for them to sell and then just the, the paradox of it right in front of us man i remember i was sitting in this um the, the last college i worked at we were at a division one college and i was sitting in this room with coaches and sport coaches and strength coaches and we were looking at this contact ACL injury where this dude just la like uh, cut tackle that he just takes some basic cut tackle underneath it, cut tackle him at the knees um, from the side at like 30, like 20 miles an hour. Like this was sprinting. Dude's a freak. Just cut tackle him, blew out his ACL. <laughs> and the the there was a strength coach in there that was talking about how if we added booty bands in that wouldn't like uh, not a booty band. Uh, I call them booty bands, but, but like band around yeah. the knees, monster walks with it that the resilience of that would help that. And I like, I like in that moment, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like that, that was one of my final straws of like, I can't do this anymore. Like you cannot watch that video and tell me a 10 pound <laughs> resisted band. And it's, but most, all it is, is like, you need to sell a solution. Like you need to sell something or your job is not there anymore. Like if you don't sell yeah. something, you can't, you can't look at that coach and be like, that's gonna happen like you're not like if anything 
we let's get our athlete out of the spot and or where he can see that dude come to clothesline him. But <laughs> at, at the end of the day, somebody has to be tackled. Somebody has to score. Like somebody has to be ran over. Like it's it's part of the game. You're gonna have to do that. No booty band. No no clamshells is is gonna prevent any of that for us. And I th- I think one of the issues that we have with this this whole conversation is that people on the kind of injury prevention side of the camp they like to to straw man us and they're like oh so you're saying there's nothing we can do about injury. Mm-hmm. I'm like well, well no it's that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that injury is just this completely mysterious black box that we can't touch. You know, there's, there's things that we can do. Uh, we can ensure that someone is prepared to meet the demands of their sport. Like if you send a, an 85 year old arthritic old woman out onto a football field to get tackled, she's going to get fucked up. Right. So there's things that we can do to ensure that like people are prepared for the environment that we place them in. Um, but we can't take that. Like, that's not what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about the 85 year old woman on a football field. We're talking about, a lot of athletes that are all, you know, highly trained, highly prepared to play football, for example, and what's going to differentiate the injury rate of one versus the other. That's a whole different conversation, a whole different ball game. Um, and people act like they have this massive amount of control over, over something they just don't, um, or they ignore factors that aren't necessarily within their control. Um, take, for example, um, when we look at sleep deprivation versus injury risk, people that don't sleep enough are statistically more likely to get hurt um, playing a sport there's ways that we can kind of, I hate to say predict, but there are things that correlate with injury just because we can find things that correlate with injury. Doesn't mean that we can necessarily control all of those factors. Um, and like you said, to think that you can prevent a, a contact ACL injury with, uh, with a little more like glute meat strengthening is just completely asinine. Yeah. And that was one of your quotes too, that I fucking loved. You're like real sports. Don't give a shit about your anatomy or <laughs> something along the lines. And, <laughs> and it's a little bit different talk, but you were talking about basically like these optimal movement patterns and honestly in my circle i haven't seen a ton of it pop up recently and then i go on twitter and so like i was like in this world like where i talk about this like my instagram is curated like it's pretty curated so i'm like man the feels in the right direction we're moving <laughs> in the right direction even people i'm arguing with on twitter or on instagram it's like i like they're smart people like we're just arguing over nuances or just things like whatever like maybe it's just egos honestly just going back and forth but they're smart like i could respect everybody on there like i know they're a smart person maybe that maybe we just disagree on something then i go on twitter and <laughs> my fucking god dude like it it is unreal like yesterday like it's a it's he's a prominent coach and he was tra- he trains combine athletes like left and right and he was telling me not telling me he just tweeted this about like the start of a 40 in the box squat coming out the box squat or the exact same thing and that's why they do it and somebody commented and like called him out is like that's not true like a squat has <laughs> nothing to do with your sprinting and the, he listed all the things and the guy's reply was look at all my athletes at the combine this weekend and he sent him like he sent him the link to watch the combine i'm like the, the appeal <laughs> to authority in this like thing it's like you you work at this combine center that has sent the freaks of the freaks. You can do fucking anything with those guys, like anything. The fact that you can't see that and be like, it has nothing to do with my box squat. It, it just blows my mind. That's the appeal to authority um, really drives me, drives me nuts in this field, because especially when we're talking about like coaching pro athletes, it's not like this thing where you like you work at a, a rinky gym and then get promoted to a high school and get promoted to a college and promoted to the pros. Like it, it's not this this thing where you've demonstrated mastery over your profession and, and make it to the next level. It's like you knew a guy that worked at the university and you knew that knew a guy here. Like it's it's so much about connection. Um, it's not like a lot of fields where it's like you had to work your way up the corporate ladder for twenty years or whatever. It's like you got really fucking lucky knowing the right person 
and you're not any more educated or qualified than like any other strength and conditioning coach. Um, you just got really, really lucky and placed in the right spot. Um, so when people have this kind of appeal to authority mindset, when like they didn't do anything special to deserve the position that they have kind of blows me away. Yeah. The, the most pro athletes I've ever worked with was when I was a sophomore in college and had no idea what the fuck I was doing. Like was just, <laughs> I was working at this internship and we had like 15 uh, guys from the Vikings training with us. And the reason they had 15 guys from the Vikings was one of their division two college guys uh, made the jump. Like I uh, got uh draft. He ran a good, I can't remember what, it, but basically he made an NFL team and then like had success there, but they was just some division two guy that they got lucky that they, they started training with. Um, and he was a, he was a really good athlete, obviously a freak athlete made it to the NFL. Um, but they knew him and then he brought in all their buddies to go train at the gym. But it's like, it, it's so true. I was like, I'm thinking about this. Like I was a sophomore working with like 15 NFL athletes, not knowing what the fuck I was doing with. And I respect like the boss and everything that was there, but the boss, my coworkers, none of us knew what the fuck we were doing to work with 15 NFL athletes. It was luck of the draw. Right. Like we, we got, they got lucky with one guy that they worked with. And he turned into be a really good NFL player and got other NFL players working in there, but it had nothing to do with, we knew what we were talking about. And that's why we have these, these athletes in front of us. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, but like I said before, um, I feel like we have a very, uh, it's a very insecure profession. Uh, you know, coaching is not necessarily the hardest thing in the world. Right. Um, so we, we try to kind of fluff up our, uh, our resume with what we can prevent injury or, look at this NFL player I work with that was an NFL player before I worked with them. Um, you know, we just kind of throw these things on there that like don't really validate anything about ourselves. Um, but yeah, I think it's just kind of a, a byproduct of, of us trying to feel better about the fact that our job doesn't have to be that hard um, and that we can just be very, very good at what we do instead of trying to do things that we, that we don't do. Yeah. Yeah. Finding meaning where there's probably not a ton of meeting. Um, yeah. One, one of the things that we, we, that I liked that you talked about was, was that unoptimal loading to build resilience in the tissues. Um, and, and some of the lifts that I see you do are kind of, it's well, one, it's a lot of unilateral lifts. The 315 was pretty sweet. Congrats on that, by the way, too. That was pretty sweet. <laughs> we elevated uh, the elevated uh, the plates, but what, what are you talking about when you're talking about like these, it, just some exposure. And I like to, you mentioned like, don't straw man me and say like, that's all we're doing. And then there's never a time for optimal, but I think you talked about keeping it extra credit and adding it in there, but how, like, what are your thought processes on how some of these non-optimal or just different movements can provide resilience to the soft tissue uh, going forward? Or, or just yeah. what's kind of your thought process when you program that? Yeah. Yeah. So like, for example, I, I think a big, uh, piece that people like to talk about this with this is looking at um, joints like the the knees or the elbows, for example, and they kind of uh, describe them as hinge joints, which is mostly true. Uh, you know, asterisk there uh, with mostly, um, so like, for example, the knee has some rotational uh, capacity and, and whatever. Uh, but the reality is like anything you do in life, whether you're walking, um, doing a push up, carrying a box, like there's like real life movement is rotational. Like that's just there's no way around that. Um, you know, everything that we do has some element of rotation and that includes, um, includes like the elbow, for example. Um, even if the elbow itself doesn't rotate a lot, if we're putting rotational torque at the wrist or the shoulder, for example, there's some sort of load being dissipated through the elbow. Even if you're not seeing a lot of movement, there's at least some level of torque on it at any given time. Um, and we have 
ligaments there that support that and help stabilize the joint. Um, so even though the elbow is a hinge joint, for example, it still has to have some capacity or resiliency to, to handle some some level of torque, even if it's not designed to move, for example, in that direction. Um, you're not going to move a, a weight by rotating your elbow. But if you're doing, say, a, a rotator cuff exercise, um, which I always find ironic that a rehabilitation exercise puts a lot of <laughs> uh, torque in the elbow in a direction that it's not designed to move. Uh, but if you're doing like a, a rotator cuff exercise, you know, a Cuban press, for example, there's a, a lot of torque on the elbow there that's not, um, you know, it's not congruent with the direction that the, the elbow actually. And that's that's fine. I don't think anyone's elbows have, have exploded um, from doing a Cuban press, um, even though that's that's loading them out of, out of the direction that they move. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, when you're doing a, uh, a bicep curl that you should try to set up at some odd angle and have like a, a ton of torque during your elbow torque during a heavy bicep curl. Um, but for example, some people will say that you shouldn't do a, a barbell bicep curl uh, because your you know arm will be out of a slight angle. So say your your humerus is at a five to ten degree angle instead of totally vertical, so then you're going to have some torque at the elbow there. Um, when I see a level of torque like that, I say great. Like in real life, you're going to have some level of of torque there at the elbow in in real world situations. And if we try to avoid it completely by optimizing the movements in the gym to the point that there's none whatsoever we're really just leaving a, a weak link or creating a potential gap there. Uh, so depending on the level of volume, level of intensity, the amount of training that you're doing, you know, if you're a bodybuilder doing 15 sets of biceps today, yeah, your elbow might get a little bit achy if you have a, a ton of unnecessary force kind of in the, the wrong quote unquote direction. Um, so you might want to pick out some more optimal exercises, like, you know, a single arm preacher curl cable stuff. You might want to rely on those exercise variations a little bit more heavily. Uh, but if you're in a gym and you're just going to hit like, three or four sets of buys and tries and you wanted to get some skull crushers and great. I don't care that that doesn't line up with your elbow perfectly. Like sure. Let's put a little stress on the, the MCL or the UCL of the elbow. I think it's going to be, be great and prepare you for what you might face in the real world. So a lot of it's really context dependent. If you're, again, if you're a bodybuilder doing a shit ton of volume and your joints already feel like trash, just because you're, your training volume, you might need to be a little bit more selective about what exercise variations you're prioritizing. But for most real people, um, preparing for the real world, athletes, et cetera, I think having some of these suboptimal loading, you know, parameters might actually contribute to some some resili- resiliency and preparedness for what they're actually going to face out in the field. Yeah, and I, that to me that draws back a little bit to like the the injury prevention model of how we approach things. But it's like we we cut out so many things and we specialize so many things and we optimize so many things that at the end of the day the athlete isn't really doing anything like and and they're scared of everything and it's almost like this self-fulfilling prophecy of you're by you trying to prepare them for this injury prevention you are making them unprepared for life and sport which they're going to have to go do and then they're going to get injured then it's going to confirm in your head athletes are injured this is what happens to them. And like working with ATs and PTs at colleges, it, it's such a different landscape too. of just seeing the lenses they see the world through of like the athlete is fragile. And I was, I was so mad at a lot of ATs and PTs when they talk about athletes, I'm like pissed. And I'm like thinking about, it. I was like, well, of course you think that like, it's all you see. So, and then, then like, okay, that, that I understand that now, but it's like strength coaches now are starting to like get into this thought process and like that they're taking away so much and restricting so much that the athlete is, not being trained they're not being actually prepared they're you're taking away all their preparation they're scared of everything the amount of athletes i've had come in that like are scared to like put their hands on the ground at all do a roll do a crawl or anything where they think they're going to get hurt um move their spine in any way that like like, i show them a picture of them doing it in their sport but like in the weight room they're like no like (laughs) it's like man it's like 
but you're 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 almost creating this self-fulfilling prophecy of that athlete getting hurt because we stop training them and we specialize them so much and we optimize them so much to something we optimize them to something that life really isn't like you're not specializing them for anything other than your perfect injury prevention program i think a, a big part of it too is even if there's a even if there's a way that we want someone to move for really any reason like say we're say we're doing a, a romanian deadlift and we want to focus on on the glutes like we want a good hip hinge right if we want to focus on the glutes we're not trying to do the, the jefferson curve we're not trying to make it a, a straight lower back exercise right so um if we're coaching an rdl and we see someone with like excessive lumbar flexion in, in that context we might say hey flatten out your back a little bit we're going for more of a hinge here to load the glutes um i think too often our answer for things when the athlete's like oh, well, well, why or whatever, or we're trying to encourage them to move a certain way. We just kind of throw out the injury thing because it's, it's easy. It's simple. Um, you know, that the athlete's going to listen to that because nobody wants to get hurt. So it's just like really lazy answer of like, Hey, don't do it that way. You, you, you could get hurt when like, that's not actually the reason at all. Like I'm trying to get you to move a different way from a performance perspective, um, to try to target a specific tissue, a specific movement pattern, address a particular weak link, all sorts of reasons why I might want you to move in a specific way. It's not that the other way is going to get you hurt. It's just a different exercise. Like, and the weight that you're holding in your hand might not be appropriate for that exercise. Um, for example, um, like we could do a Jefferson curl, but you're probably gonna need to take some, take some weight off the bar um, based on what you have right now. Um, so I think how we phrase these things is, is really, really important. Um, and I think, saying don't do it that way because you might get hurt is one of the most dangerous and irresponsible things that we can do um, in the context of, of athlete training. Um, Cause it makes people afraid. It causes people to lose confidence and then they're, they're focused on all of the wrong things. Um, so I think that we should avoid saying things like that at all costs and come up with um, you know, what is the real reason that we want someone moving differently? And if we don't know, we probably, <laughs> probably shouldn't be coaching it. That, that that's so that's so freaking good because i remember i herniated a disc when i was 16 and i remember just the the first thing that a pt told me was like you'll never squat you'll never deadlift again um and for the long and it, it like he literally just told me like he just threw that out there uh and i was 16 and it's like pt like a doctor i'm like oh this is this is who i have to listen to um and i followed that for like four years before i like just realized oh like i need to like that is not right like that it's not right um, but like one sentence, a dude that had known me for 10 seconds, you know, like he knew me, walked in the office, did the scans, saw it, said something to me. I was on my way. Um, and that that's all he knew of me. That's that's all he knew of my background. He he knew kind of how I heard it. Um, and that, that's what he said. And that like that one sentence affected me for four years. And, and I'm a pretty stubborn guy that likes doing things and like pushing back and, and doing those type of things. But I, I, I know athletes that are not like they don't have that stubborn mindset. They, they're just. And then I'm not and that's where it's like, you should listen, you like, you should be able to listen to a coach or a PT or an AT because it's their level of expertise. You should like, that's why you're going to them because you want to listen to them about yeah. your body. And so you should be able to trust them. So they're going to go with the mindset of, I should trust this person. They should know my body better than me and not better than me, but they should know my body. Uh, they should know how a body operates. You say these words, it becomes a story. They tell, tell themselves over and over again. And you really have no you have no idea how long some of those words and sentences that you're saying affect that athlete for the, the rest of their career or lives. It's so true, man. I, I think of especially some of the like older people that I work with just in terms of like one-on-one -on -one, um, general population coaching people who are in their, their mid fifties, for example, that they're afraid to move their back a certain way. And well, on the one hand, I have kind of responsibility to, to educate and get them to feel confident in their body. There's only so much I can do to, 
to undo what they've been told for 40 years. Like if someone comes to me and I'm not their first coach experience. They've probably worked with, you know, 10 other coaches or personal trainers in the past. They've gone to see multiple chiropractors, physical therapists, doctors, et cetera. And they've been hearing the same stuff for their entire life of, um, you know, make sure you brace your core every time you pick up a, a laundry basket at home or, or whatever. And I'm over here saying like, um, don't we know that like, like hyper, <laughs> uh, hypersensitivity of, of that tissue and like, over awareness of that and that those low threshold contacts actually correlates more positive, more correlates more powerfully with pain. And like, we shouldn't be cueing people to over engage their core for every little mundane life activity, um, trying to get people to like have more confidence in themselves. But there's only, again, so much I can do to undo the messaging they've gotten from other healthcare professionals, so to speak for, for their whole life. Well, and that, that, that's what I talk about too. It's like, you have all these coaches arguing about like back squat, front squat, reverse lunge. And like, I look at it and I just, I just talked to Joel Smith about this on his podcast. If it's like one of your main jobs as a sports performance coach is like to get into those stories. Like if you really want to create change, uh, like the story they tell them. And this is on all aspects. I'm reading um how the, how the body keeps score. And they were talking about how a lot of times weight, weight is more psycho like psychological than physiological. And it's like the story a person tells themselves, um, and they were they were talking about a girl that got raped and she got big because she knew if she got big that she'd be less attractive or a guy that was beat up as a kid or bullied as a kid would get big so like he could protect themselves. Um, and, and they were just talking about the deeper level and how much the psychology and how much the stories that you tell yourself matter more than like we're going to count calories here or we're going to back squat or reverse lunge here rather than just like focus on the story that that athlete has in their head of. I can't bend my spine. It's like, okay, like, let's work on that story. And, and like, it, it, in our experience, and obviously we have a bias now because we have athletes that are approaching us with, they want their story to be changed. So like I put out a ton of stuff on back stuff. And so now we have athletes with a bias of like, they want their story to be changed. So it's a little bit easier. But when we started, it was like, we'd have these athletes with these stories over and over again, telling themselves that they can't move their back that way. They can't move their bodies that way. And you get them to roll. You get them to maybe it's a Jefferson deadlift, maybe it's a Jefferson curl. Um, you get them to move their spine, and it just just briefly, maybe it's two minutes. Part it's two minutes of your workout to start. Maybe it's a lot like an oblique bend. That's a big one for a lot of athletes, like bending their spine yeah. sideways, loaded. Um, and you you start to get them to be like, oh, I can, like I can do this. I can move my body this way. And that's where I really think a lot of the value of a coach comes into play is like changing that story because, again. You're really not going to do much physically. Like the athlete has to do it physically. The athlete has to do a ton. What you can do is like just give the athlete a story that allows them to do what they want to do rather than be constrained by the story that they are they themselves are telling themselves over and over again. So it's just breaking that story and showing them. And it doesn't take – it's not like you have to change everything about the athlete day one. But it's like just just slowly tease that stuff in and you'd be amazed at how much that opens up an athlete's ability to move. It's it's so interesting how many when when you talk about the story aspect of it, how many people have these just very highly specific, highly specific things that they um, think that they can't do, right? So, for example, I had an, I had an athlete that they're like, um, I can overhead press. Um, it's just if I do a barbell overhead press for anything heavier than six reps, my neck cramps up. I'm like that is a very highly specific situation in which your your neck decides to not cooperate with you. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of things to tease out there, but, um, or people will say, you know, I can, I can deadlift with the trap bar or dumbbells, uh, or whatever, but I can't deadlift with, with a barbell. Like, yes, there's some fundamental differences between those movements, but they're similar enough that I don't think that the barbell itself is the problem. 
you know, people have these very specific contexts or very specific circumstances where they feel limited, uh, but then you change it just a little bit and suddenly they're okay. Um, and I think that reveals a, a huge area of, of opportunity to kind of shift that story. Yeah, that, that that's so good. And I think the barbell one is, that's one that I definitely told myself for the longest time of like, you can't, I, and that's, this is where it started to get silly for me. It's like, I was hex bar deadlifting like 600 pounds and I couldn't, I wouldn't go over like 405 on a bar, straight bar barbell. Um, And, but then a lot of it was like, it, it's again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is the power of stories. It's like, you tell yourself you can't, so then you don't. So then you're actually unable to. It's it's like <laughs> right. this three-step process. It's like you are actively making yourself, you are actively making that story you are telling yourself true by not doing something. And that's where it's like, I just started, de- so I, the last like three months, I've just been deadlifting every single day, just deadlift every single day. And I'm like, my deadlift has never felt better. And I've been doing, I was just ripping it every day. Um, And my back's never felt better. The hamstrings are growing like crazy, but it's like, it, Again, it's that the power of the story is that you kind of just hit on it. It's like you actually you actually do become unable. And that, that's the tough part. It's like that athlete probably is unable to bend their spine to start because they haven't done it for so long. So they like they, they haven't introduced that movement. So, like, of course, you're not able to Jefferson curl 405 or 225 or 135. Maybe it's just body weight. You can't even touch your toes, you know, like maybe it's like so you have lost the ability. That doesn't mean it's gone forever. And I think that's a big piece of it, too. It's like we got to tease it. We got to get it back. But the story you have told yourself has became true in the moment. And now we need to change that story going forward so that you are physically capable of it going forward. Absolutely. I, I have the experience myself. You know, I think a lot of people look at, at you know, fairly competent athletes or, or coaches and think that we've always felt fine or never had any sort of any of these sorts of issues or, or movement, uh, movement problems. Um, but for me, I was always um, I was great at keeping a neutral spine. Like I had the best <laughs> I had the best core stability, like just my it always came naturally to me too. It's not like something that I had to work at a ton, uh, but as kind of a, a younger athlete, I start seeing these things. I'm like, Oh great. Like this is how I'm supposed to do it. I'm good at doing it that way. Um, and I never kind of ventured out and explored um, the, the alternative. Um, and I was always really proud of the fact that I was, <laughs> I was so good at keeping a neutral spine. Right. Uh, but I also noticed that even at a fairly young age, like I'd be, you know, college student, early twenties. Right. And um, if I had a long car ride, or a long flight, for example, sitting kind of like a slouch position, my, my back would like blow out mm-hmm. and I'd have like this sore spot in my, my back that I had to like work out, et cetera. And then, then I kind of, I learned, so to speak, that I need to think about my posture in those situations, right? I'm like, okay, sit up tall, sit up straight. And it, it worked like to, to some degree. So it was kind of self, it was again, that like self-fulfilling prophecy or reinforced my belief that like, um, I need to not like round my back like that. Cause when I slouch on the plane, my my back ends up hurting, which seems simple enough. I mean, it's a pretty logical, logical train of thought. Um, but fast forward a, a number of years, um, get a little bit smarter, get a little bit more educated on the, on the subject. And I realized that like, I'm just super fucking weak and, and a flexed, in <laughs> <laughs> a flexed position. Like I may have great core stability, but the second you, you round the back, my strength is just gone. Uh, and so I start tackling that and exploring that. And it's a, a long journey. I'm still like not as strong as I'd like to be in that position, um, but nowadays, like I can slouch on a plane for like a four hour flight, no problem, which to me, that is actually life changing. Like I used to dread that, like, I might have to sit down for too long or like inevitably I'm going to slouch and inevitably like my back is going to hurt afterwards. Whereas now just from like building some strength and being more confident in those positions, I can s- slouch on a plane and, you know, watch a movie or whatever. And I'm not going to 
be in pain the next day. Um, and that's, that's huge. And that's come from, you know, embracing, <laughs> embracing the low back pump, um, embracing some of these positions I used to kind of be afraid of. And, and again, this is going to sound super meatheadish, but it's like embracing the things you suck at too, you know, because I, I think that's one of the, the biggest eye openers for me is like realizing what you suck at is the biggest lowest like or is the lowest hanging fruit around you that you can grab onto and like just see instant gains and that like the deadlift journey has been super exposing to me it's like I, i've sucked at it and it was super super exposed it's like it was something that either hurt to do or it's just bad at um and i start doing something i'm bad at and it's like i could squat all day every day um and not make the gains that i made just starting to deadlift and, and doing this deadlift journey um, because it's just low hanging for, again, it's, it's a spot that I'm super weak at or a spot that I'm not competent in. Um, and I think that's a, a lot of times it's, uh, it's a very good indicator of where you actually need to work is the stuff that you are avoiding. A hundred percent, dude. And to me that, um, that's one of the things I love about being a, a hybrid athlete and not that it has to be this way for everyone. Um, but to me, there's an, an element behind being a hybrid or concurrent athlete that embraces that idea of low hanging fruit of like embracing the challenge and leaning into what people say isn't possible or you shouldn't be able to do, or that's going to be too tough. Um, and just kind of leaning into that and embracing the, uh, embracing the challenge and, and not avoiding what you're bad at. Um, so for me, like right now I'm working a lot on, uh, overhead strength, right. Continuing to progress and like, um, embrace more like spinal flexion, that kind of thing. Those are some known weak spots that I'm embracing. Um, and it does mean a lot of times checking the ego and like, using a lot less weight than you see some of the, the other dudes lifting on the gram, right? You like see uh deadliest lift doing like a, a, a neck, <laughs> a neck clean with like 400 pounds or whatever. Um, and you're like, man, I want, I want that level of, of resiliency in, in my lower back. Right. Um, whereas, you know, we all have our strengths too. Like people probably look at, at some of my like lunges uh, the same way. Right. Um, but at, while everyone has their strength, they all have their, their weaknesses too. Yeah. And, and I think one of the best things about being the hybrid athlete is that you are an athlete. And I, I think this, this is a big piece of like a lot of coaches too. It's like that if they're not an athlete, like for most coaches, they're not an athlete. And I'm not saying you need to be like the highest of high level athletes, but I think there's something to be said to like exposing yourself to the environments in which your athletes are going to be somewhat exposed to and the psychological stress and the physical stress and being like, oh, this is actually what's happening here. And I see these coaches and I, I see the arguments on Twitter. I'm like, I go to their page and like, and I can predict it before, but I go to the page. I'm like, I know you didn't, you, you're not playing sports. You're not doing anything active. <laughs> like you're just strictly lifting a barbell. And, and that's the thing. It's like, that's why the barbell matters so much to you is that's all like, that's all you do. And that's perfect. I'm, I'm not faulting anybody. Like if you want to be a power lifter, absolutely. Or you just want to be just a meathead weekend warrior. That's amazing. But it, it what happens is like you you are unable to see your own bias in that it's like it matters to you because it's all you do but that's not all your athletes do or it's not all your clientele does so like you really need to step out and like go do something or or just at least watch something or like you know experience it in a way because like I try to be as active as possible and play different sports and try different things that I suck at and I'm like man this is this is what's happening here this is when I, mean, I missed that shot or I I pop up in softball or do something stupid it's like the psychological stress there or like my my doesn't matter how good I peaked in my front squats like I still suck at pickleball you know like so like 
the, the the skill acquisition piece of everything and the psychological stress and even just even if you just want to go physically it's like we do all the perfect stuff and then i'll go like die for a ball in softball and like hurt like something won't feel that great <laughs> or like i realize like it's a lot of lateral like lateral side to side motion and that a squat is not going to solve any of that you know um and, and i just think that's a huge piece of the puzzle is like that that hybrid athlete allows you to kind of stay in it and almost have like um say in the game like you you have your own money in the bank you know right i i did a i did a competition earlier this year where uh, one of the workouts involved some sandbag squats and i'm a good squatter um at least i'm i'm a good barbell squatter i should rephrase that um so i i kind of go into this with the confidence that i i felt like i was one of the better barbell squatters in the the group and when it came time to do that sandbag squat workout i just got fucked over <laughs> like i that those sandbag squats completely wrecked me and it, it it was honestly like the it was one thing physically but like mentally just to feel that defeated by a really light sandbag um you know compared to what i i barbell squat and just to think like you know like i'm reflecting back and all my training in my head like all the hours in the gym squatting and i'm like what the fuck was the point of all that if this like sandbag is just gonna have its way with me you know um but i think those experiences of like seeing well, obviously, there's some carryover from the gym to these other things you might want to do. Um, it's that that strength you develop in the context of the gym often does not translate or pay off to the level that you think it's going to when you're when you're put in those situations. Uh, and I think that's a that's kind of a good humbling experience to have. Yeah, that that's super good. And you you talked about your training. And this is something that I wanted to talk to you about. Well, I saw this, the, the Sex and Zombies program. And I was like, ooh, this is, this is I want to have this guy on strictly for this purpose. But you, you talked about the, the Sex and Zombies program is a lot of your training. Can you kind of talk about what the Sex and Zombies program is and what that kind of looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so Sex and Zombies is, is really just um, an extreme version, I think, of, of why everyone trains in, in some capacity. When you ask people, hey, what do you work out for? Um, why do you go to the gym? And you would kind of ask that why, 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 why a couple of times to get to the root of it. Um, I think for most people, it's on some level, they want to look good, feel good, be confident, um, look good, be good, um, look, look good, feel good, be confident. Um, and that's kind of the, the sex piece of like, do you, do you look good naked? Are you confident um, in your body? Um, and on some level, do you have the, the aerobic capacity to perform in the bedroom? <laughs> I think those three things kind of, um, comprise the the sex piece of the program so if you're truly prepared um if you're truly prepared for sex um i think you're going to have those three three buckets taken care of um and then in terms of zombies it's like are you ready for the apocalypse are you ready for whatever life decides to throw at you um so it's this idea of being harder to kill um ready for anything um and i think if we combine those two you know um do you do you look good naked are you confident um do you do you feel good in your own skin and are you truly hard to kill and, and ready for anything. Um, that's what sex and zombies is, is it's a program designed to do all those things at a, a high level. Um, so kind of using those as, as the main objectives. Uh, so on the, the looking good side, there's a big emphasis on just straight hypertrophy work. Um, so are we doing the things we need to do to support uh, a good body composition, lean mass, all that kind of stuff. So big emphasis on hypertrophy um, for again, body composition for aerobic uh, health, all that kind of stuff, big emphasis on just aerobic conditioning. So a lot of zone two work, um, on the zombie side, the, you know, are you ready for the apocalypse? There's some like odd lifts, um, general, uh, GPP kind of Metcon type stuff. Um, can you carry an odd object? Um, can you, uh, do a, a, a squat, just like pick up things in weird ways? Are you, 
resilient in that sense to do things outside of like the normal gym context and with normal um, equipment. Um, so when you kind of blend all that kind of stuff together, can you handle the odd lifts? Can you do all the, the weird shit? Uh, can you handle that GPP side of things? And then can you also, you know, just move some heavy weight, um, handle some, some, uh, some solid weight for sets of eight to 12, you know, general hypertrophy stuff. Um, and can you go for an hour run? Um, you know, can you keep your heart rate up for that long without dying? Um, uh, basically those three things, um, uh, a little bit of all that kind of sprinkled into a program, um, is what sex and zombies is all about. Um, so I have a team programming subscription, uh, athletes can join that in it at any time. Um, it's not strictly periodized. There's no strict phases. Um, I use what I call staggered variation. So rather than like six week training blocks, for example, um, just a little bit changes every single week. So every week you'll notice one or two small program tweaks. And over time, that results in basically a brand new program every eight weeks or so. Um, it allows people to kind of start and stop whenever and, and not feel like they're um, stuck uh, trying to stick to certain phases. What about the interference effect, though? <laughs> oh, the interference effect. That's a that's a great conversation that we can have. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll kick it off by saying that um, most people, um, including those who think that they are, um, are not fit enough for it to matter. <laughs> um, that'll That'll be my opening statement. That's pretty good. That's that's what we um I, I've been seeing that on Twitter too. I, I think I ranted about the whole Instagram thing and then realized like I didn't go back to the you go on Twitter and it's just a wild west, man. It's uncurated <laughs> wild west and some of the stuff I see I'm like, bro, <laughs> like what in the world? But the the interference effect, like I thought that was dead. Like I legit did not think that was a thing anymore. Um, and I went on Twitter the other day and saw that people were arguing about that. Um, but how like but how do you like how do you approach that in a way of like it, without that linear like we're working strength block speed block like whatever cardio block like how how do yeah. you approach that in a way of making sure because ours ours is very this very similar like um every week we kind of switch up our programming just a tiny bit um one keep the psychological interest high um to continue to just progress things slowly kind of slow cook the athlete and kind of all these regards and this is where i feel like we get into trouble a little bit it's like we 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 peak them in just this one like one regard whether it's strength or speed and then we go to the next thing it's like the athletes required to use all these things the hybrid athlete especially is like required to use all these things at once it's like there is no situation in which you just need to run fast and you can't have uh you can't you don't need your like cardiovascular system or you don't need strength and you like you're just cutting all these things and then and i realized like when i was in track and field in college uh, we would do all these fucking peaking things, and I felt terrible at the end of every single one. And I'll, like, I'm I'm for sure like the workhorse type to where like I I I perform best when I'm working like a lot. Like I have a lot of load on me. But we do all these peaking things. Not be terrible by the end of it. Like the last time I lifted a heavy weight was like 12 weeks ago, and less and like that. My body responds super well to it. But it was like it was rode in this art like wrote in this uh program and it was set like 52 weeks ago everything was set out and planned perfectly <laughs> and none of the coaches could even just look at it and be like wow this athlete's not responding well to this this doesn't make sense for this athlete um so yeah i, I just like to know your, your thoughts on all of this i, I think they're going to be similar yeah. but i just like to hear your rants <laughs> on it yeah for sure well and first of all just in terms of like the interference effect overall um i think we're all familiar with with the idea of of newbie gains right and the idea that if you take an untrained individual you can throw anything at them. Like if you give an untrained individual um, a cycling program, they're going to build some, it's going to be a hypertrophy program. Essentially, like you put a brand new athlete on a bike for six weeks, they're going to build some leg muscle. They're going to build some aerobic capacity, whatever. It's kind of like anything works for everything. If you're deconditioned enough, obviously as you get fitter, you got to take a more specialized approach to what kind of adaptation you're trying to achieve, 
all that good stuff. But on some level, there's some kind of crossover um, across kind of all training stimuli. On the other extreme, in terms of the interference effect, if you're going to compete in the Olympics um, tomorrow uh, in Olympic weightlifting, you probably don't want to run a marathon the day before. That's just kind of common sense. Um, probably probably not a good thing to do. Um, but most people, just like most men think they could beat Serena Williams in the tennis match, um, <laughs> most people think that they're far closer to the advance end of the spectrum than they actually are, when in reality, they're probably much closer to, <laughs> to still being able to get some newbie gains in some areas. Um, and most people just don't want to admit um, what a low level they're truly at. And that's not a dig on people. Um, there's some some great athletes. Like you look at, um, say, like the top 10% of athletes in, in any given gym, they're, they're fit people. Um, but compare that to like truly world-class performance in their chosen discipline. And most people that we're having these conversations with on Instagram, et cetera, are not the professional athletes. They're not the outliers. They're just people who are, who are pretty good at stuff. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, in terms of how the fitness adaptations are, are going to work in regards to the interference effect. Um, they are not the person competing in the Olympics tomorrow. Um, they're the person that still has a lot of um, low hanging fruit and, and easy ground to cover in a lot of, in a lot of respects. Um, so with that in mind, um, when we look at different fitness adaptations in terms of minimum effective dose, um, maintenance dose, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we compare kind of the minimum doses and maintenance doses for the average person to the professional athlete. Um, if we look at, say, like a Tour de France rider, um, if we want to move their VO2 max up a little bit, or if we want to improve their aerobic capacity, we might need to give them 30 hours a week of aerobic work. Uh, whereas, um, you know, for for me or for you, we, we might be able to improve our aerobic capacity in a handful of hours, um, right? And then the same thing goes for all sorts of adaptations. You know, how much of this type of work do you need to get better at it? Um, and when we're, when we're looking at a professional athlete, right, who's at a super, super high level, if we want to give a tour to France writer 30 hours of aerobic work, there's not space for anything else. Like mm -hmm. they're, they're max. There's only so much that they can do. Um, but when we're looking at an athlete who like, okay, it's only going to take a few sets of this to get you better at that. It's only going to take a few hours of, of this to improve your aerobic system. It's only going to take a little bit of this and that. And, and the other thing, there ends up being a lot of things that we can progress simultaneously. And we get so caught up in this idea of inter the interference effect at a fundamental or a cellular level in terms of how adaptations might actually serve cross purposes or interfere with each other in terms of metabolic pathways and enzymes and all this shit. When the, the reality is that the biggest thing and the, the main reason why the interference effect applies at a high level is simply overall time, energy, resources, calories, that kind of thing. That's, that's the big one. And for most people at an intermediate level, that's not a huge, huge restriction you probably have the time, the capacity, and the energy. You can probably eat enough food to support, um, you know, a couple of different objectives at the same time um, because you're not good enough at any of them to need an entire training schedule or an entire program dedicated to, to one specific adaptation. Um, so it's far less to do with, you know, these two adaptations cancel each other out as much as do you have the time and the energy um, to tackle both at the level that you need to. And I think for most people, they have um, a lot more, uh, potential to do that than they believe well and especially in a, in a sport and this this is where it's like you have tour de france and you have like olympic weightlifting that are like extremely extremely like specific uh and those athletes are peaking in like one physical qual like quality that they need to and they're actual experts in it i've met nf like i've worked with nfl clients that are like they're intermediate 
physically all over the place. Like, they're, they're like yeah. you know, like they're, like they're, they're freaks of nature overall because they're they're overall like they have so many like they're intermediate high like high level intermediate in every aspect of everything they do, and they know the technical and tactical understanding of the game, and they can catch a football like blindfolded while being tackled by a bear, you know. But like they. The team, like it's, it's pulled into these team sport athletes, and like you're peaking these team sport athletes and doing things with these team sport athletes like this. It's like it, it, that's that, especially high school and college, man. It's like what there is not a single high school or college athlete that is not at an intermediate or below like average level athletically, and in some regard that you can work that is going to be required on the field. And that that's where it's like there's so many qualities that are required to be worked on the field. And you you need to like like you need to microdose almost all of it. And we we spend again. You talk about how it's thirty hours on the bike, and there's not a ton of time there. But we'll we'll spend thirty hours on a barbell, you know. And that's that's one specific quality when they need to work on nineteen to thirty different qualities to go. And they're and they're below average in all of these. And the only one that they're above average in is the barbell because they've worked. It. And they, the only reason they are above average in it is because they've worked it. You, they can become they have the motor to become above 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 average in all of these qualities that they're going to be required to do but it's like it's such a silly thought process and and pulled in so many pulled in like warped in so many ways and i think a lot of it goes back to again that importance as a coach you know like you can't just say like we're going to microdose everything we're going to work on everything we're going to make you we're going to expand everything together you need to be like i'm a strength specialist i'm a speed specialist i'm whatever a specialist it is but it's like they're that's not what their sport requires no not at all man i was i was actually just earlier today um, I was doing a, a coaching consultation with an international level lacrosse player um, and talking to him kind of about the, 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 the level of fitness that these athletes have um, in the gym running just in, in terms of any individual fitness adaptation that none of them are actually that impressive at any of these things individually. Like you said, they're kind of, um, you know, high, high intermediates at a wide variety of things, but they're certainly not experts or great at anything compared to a, a true specialist. Um, you know, they really are hybrid athletes in a sense in terms of having to have some ability to sprint and change direction, have some aerobic capacity, have some decent strength, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they really are a hybrid athlete at the end of the day. Um, but then we'll try to coach them or build a, a highly periodized program like we would for for a specialist. Um, and I think oftentimes that doesn't make a lot of sense um, to try to coach someone like they're um, not like they're not a high level athlete because they are. Um, but we have this idea that a, a high-level program should look a certain way because we've seen what high-level marathon programs look like or high-level Olympic weightlifting programs look like. Um, but that doesn't mean that a high-level lacrosse program or high-level football program needs to be periodized or structured the same way. Yeah, that that's freaking awesome. Coach, th this was awesome. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely awesome. I had a, I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.